Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of the Political People podcast. We really hope you enjoy. If you do, please subscribe and leave us a review. Today we have a fantastic interview for you between our columnist and editor Ian Scott and a, and a progressive candidate running for Congress in Pennsylvania, Kareth Stranel Taylor. It's, going, it's a really fantastic interview with, which covers a wide range of um, topics, so we really hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Kareth Strano-Taylor, a candidate for the Pennsylvania District 5 as a Democrat. Kareth, how are you doing today? I'm doing brilliantly well in this cold weather. I hope you're well as well. Thank you so much. Now, um, the skills of strong negotiation and litigation have been strongly emphasized in your platform. Even having won you significant praise and accolades, we will discuss in further detail. Now, what does a strong negotiator look like in practice? I'll give you an example. Are you ready? Because it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to identify. Sure. So, in my little itty bitty town that I live in, we used to have a free legal service that would help folks that couldn't afford attorneys help them navigate through the custody system, right? Because the most important thing most people face in their lives is who's going to get the kids when the marriage breaks up. Absolutely. So our first step is we expect these parties to come into the court and negotiate, have a conversation about how to solve this particular problem. Well, Laura Legal lost their funding, so they closed. So we started, got this onslaught of families coming into the courthouse, standing in the hallway, screaming at each other because clearly they weren't able to communicate very well in the relationship, which probably led to the separation, and it bogged down our system. We were waiting, you know, 6, 8, 10, 15 weeks for mediation, which is the second step when normally our wait is about 4 weeks. Wow. So, my judge asked me if I was willing to sit down with these folks and help them negotiate. Now, of course, when your judge asks you, you say yes. So I've been doing this for two years now, and 85% of the cases that come to me settle in an hour. Wow. So let's, let's picture what's happening here. We have two people that could not agree less on what color the sky is, right? And there's all these economic issues that are tied to where the children live, right? Child support is going to be an issue. Health insurance is going to schooling, all these issues. And when they come in and sit down, I usually open by asking them if they love their children more than they hate the other person. Now, they're often shocked to hear it, but they always tell me yes, right? Whether it's true or not, and I believe most people do love their children more than anything, but it's, it's getting us on the right footing to start the conversation. And by the time we're done, we're able to figure out who's going to have Christmas, right? We know most parties know who did the majority of the parenting when they were together, right? This isn't fiction, and we're able to solve it. So... I don't know a lot of other people that can do that. Right. But I do. I do it, and I do it frequently. Um, and, you know, we now have people from counties surrounding us that choose to come here for their conferences and file their cases here because we have a system built that they get the expertise of someone set out just to help them come to an agreement. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's 
really amazing. And it's because, you know, negotiation is about really listening to where people are coming from, and oftentimes their words don't tell you, right? Oftentimes what they really want is two steps away from what they're willing to say and having the insight to ask the questions and figure out really what they need. It's a skill that you develop. You know, I've been doing this for 15 years. Precisely. So, you know, and I think I, I use I use it in every facet of, of my, my work and my life, and it works. And I look at Congress, and I watch them. I watch the hearings, right? I have C-SPAN on all the time. And what, I'm, what I see is a fundamental lack of this skill. I think it was present up until probably the 90s when we had the, the first shutdown and our politics became more about no than yes. Sure. Right. So that's, that's what it gets. It's people that are diametrically opposed to one another agreeing on an, on an issue and a challenge and starting to pick apart the things upon which they do agree so that you narrow the list upon the, of things upon which they don't agree and then you split the baby, essentially, right? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's what it. That's what it is. It's, but it's something you learn how to do, and if you have good people to model after, right? Many people can be taught how to do it, but if you're modeling after people that don't know what don't know how to do it, you're never going to learn. So, very interesting insight into a standard operating model on the skill of negotiation and practice. Thank you so much for that, My Karen. Pleasure. Now, um, as a follow up, do you believe any negotiator, no matter how skilled, can stand up to the entrenched interests in our country's um, currently gridlocked Congress? And furthermore, um, are there any recommendations you have to make this uh, negotiations process more effective, n notwithstanding the standard operating model? Well, it would be wonderful if one or two skilled negotiators could show up and wave a magic wand and fix it. But there are, there are a number of pieces that have to happen. Um, firstly, we have to make sure that the White House is occupied by someone who appreciates the spirit of negotiation, right? If you dive into the veterans bill that Bernie Sanders did with John McCain, that is a lesson in what negotiation looks like. They right. both had a shared goal and vision of how to do right by vets. They had to deal with their party's competing interests of how to get it done. And they came up with something that wasn't ideal for either of them, but moved us forward. Right. So having someone in the White House that doesn't create um, discord and doesn't create acrimony but can you know, lead by example is key. But we also need an overhaul of the House and the Senate because without that, as we've seen with President Obama, it becomes very difficult to get anything productive done. And right now I think we're at, what, 530. We need five Senate seats. We need 30 House seats. And hopefully, if we fill those 530 with people who are skilled at doing what I do, we have a chance to break the, the, the grip that money has on our policymaking. Because every single issue comes back to the fact that I believe our government is a wholly purchased subsidiary Absolutely. Of, corporate, of corporate America. So until we fix that, we're not going to be able to move forward, but we need enough bodies willing to stand up and fix that when they're given the opportunity. So it's a many-layered, you know, it's a many, many-step process, but that's the goal. And, you know, if you look across the nation, there's a lot of incumbents that aren't even being challenged. Right, exactly. People don't even run, 
Exactly, and um, honestly, um, this may be a little bit off, off, uh, off script, off, off cuff. But um, to be honest with you, Kareth, um, this is something that um, there certainly will need to be standard bearers for, with respect to the grassroots organization of the Progressive uh, Caucus and the the greater political revolution. So I very much appreciate your um, your call to arms for that. Now, um, moving forward here, we have, um, you have served uh, in elected office on the Brookville Area School Board in uh, 2011, and um, in 2013, you were actually elected um, school board president. Now, how have these experiences in education informed your policies on education-related issues? I have, well, I'm absolutely convinced that there is a group of people that want nothing more than to bankrupt public education, Mm -hmm. and they want to move public education money into private coffers. I've never been so certain of that um, than since, you know, my serving on the school board and watching how, how the levers of power work in Harrisburg, and, you know, people are salivating over that pot of money, and we know that charter schools, these you know, private charter schools, do not outperform public schools. Right. Period. So any, I would argue, any investment that we use of public money, it should be going to public schools and diverting it to private schools, is failing our kids. But because the, the lobby that's supporting it is well-funded, right, uh, they drown out the noise of this isn't working for any kid at home. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Um, and we have to, you know, it feels like tilting at windmills. But what's fascinating about the minutia of education funding, um, and it's, it all comes back to gerrymandering and redistricting, and I don't know how familiar you, are, familiar you are with what's going on in Pennsylvania, but I'll give you a snapshot. So they carved up our state in, after the 2010 census and created uber-safe districts across the Commonwealth. So the state itself is blue. Right? We won the governor. We took the governor's seat. It was the first time we unseated an incumbent governor when we elected Tom Wolf last year. And then this year, we just swept all five seats um, for the judiciary. The Democrats did. So the state is blue. No one can argue with that. But when you peel back the layer and look at the, the representative elections and the state Senate elections, they're red. So we elected a governor with a mandate to raise education funding and to tax shale. Right? And he won with an overwhelming majority. So he went to Harrisburg saying, I have a mandate. This is my job. I'm going to go do this. But we also elected a whole bunch of Republicans with overwhelming majorities in their carved safe districts. And they were sent with a mandate to say, stop him. And unfortunately, neither of them are wrong. So we're now eight months without a budget. We have, we have children and youth services agencies writing IOUs to foster families. 
saying, please, will you keep these kiddos one more month? We can't pay you. Wow. We have schools that are considering shutting down or taking out huge loans to keep operating. We have domestic violence shelters that help women get protection for abuse orders that haven't had funding in eight months. Right? So it is broken, but we allowed them to break it. And this is the consequence of it. So, I mean, education, public schools, and funding, yeah, we created this monster, and we have no budget. So, set, you know, put aside the question of whether we invest more money, we can't even get the money that we need for basic operations, because they're playing politics. That almost seems criminal. So. It kind of, it's gross, right? But here's the thing, it's not, because they were elected. They were sent there to say no, right? Right. Because they carved the seats up in such a way that, right, and, and you know how people tend to reelect the, the incumbent. Right. And unfortunately, the majority of these state house seats, they don't, they go unchallenged. Absolutely insane. Yes. So we've become lazy as people, and we know the further we get from a threat to our liberty, right, the further we get from someone showing up on our shores, like Pearl Harbor, the fewer people vote. Sure. We know this to be true. So... You know, we saw a little uptick after 9-11, and that has waned. And we have to get people voting again, because that's how that's how we get control of our government again and stop shenanigans like no budget for eight months. Exactly. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, it seems like we're actually getting through these, these questions fairly quickly. Um, there's something that um, you just touched on there I'd, I'd like to follow up on a little further. Um, now... You're you're essentially indicting um, the electorate for not being engaged in the political process. Now, um, I'm familiar with a certain law out of Oregon, which um, incentivizes through the form of a tax credit um, individual donations to campaigns. Now, um, is there anything like that or any other sort of votership incentive that you would advocate for to increase turnout? In Australia, you have to vote. You have to vote. You have to send in a receipt that you voted when you file your taxes. Sure. Right? And people are up in arms. Oh my goodness, that's just terrible, right? You're impinging on my liberty. I'm not so sure. I think it's an obligation of every American to vote. Um, and, and I know that's very controversial and people get very nervous, but Oh, to me, it's your duty, right? It's sure. Your duty is to is to vote. But here's the thing: I get it. I understand why people opt out. I really do. It feels like tilting at windmills. There's, I mean, I don't know how better to describe it. Let me give you a fascinating example. It was the strangest circumstance I've ever, I think, ever had in my office. I had a lesbian couple come into my office. They had recently been married because Pennsylvania now allows marriage. Um, for lesbian couples, and they were asking about how to adopt one of their cousin's children, right? This woman was planning on having an abortion. One of the women was vehemently pro-life, asked her not to, said, I will take the child and raise the child as my own, went to the hospital the day the baby was born, mom gave the baby to cousin, they've been raising the baby for a year and a half, and now they wanted to do the adoption. Happy to help, right? I think that's a beautiful, lovely story. Absolutely. So at the end of the meeting, I say to them, just out of curiosity, what party are you? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, how are you registered to vote? Oh, we don't vote. That's bigger than us. I said, okay, wait a minute. 
people have been fighting for 20 years for you to have the right to be married, which just happened last April. Yay, right? Yeah. You think you could vote to support them. Or, on the other side, you're, you know, you're living a pro-life message. You're not just saying it. You're living it. You're raising this child because you believe so strongly in it. You'd think that you would get registered to vote to support those policies, right? Think, nope. It's so much bigger than us. And it was that moment. They weren't misrepresenting the truth. It's how they absolutely honestly felt. And I don't, I don't know, how do I tell them they're wrong? Right? We have parties, both, that I believe are bought and paid for by the largest donors. Right. We have 200 families that are supporting the entire presidential you know, race, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, who has 2 million people supporting his, that is his true. presidential run. You know, I don't know how to tell them, oh, let's be more optimistic. You know, but their vote matters. In their case, I think they'd probably cancel each other out, ironically. But, yeah. you know, that's that's where people are. And, you know, they feel like their voice doesn't isn't heard anymore. And it'll take a hell of a lot of us getting people registered and getting them to vote before we'll start to see that. But maybe it's going to be this year. You know, maybe we're going to see those people stepping up and saying, you know, I like the sound of this guy. He makes sense to me. He's telling the truth. I'm going to vote for him. Sure. Some of those people might say that about Donald Trump. Right. Right? But if, if it gets them registered, you know, maybe, maybe I don't know. I mean, I, I, people, they're going to vote their conscience. Right. But I want them to vote. You know, this is really interesting, Kareth, because um, I actually just uh, recently read a, um, a policy synopsis and results-based piece on... Um, the United Kingdom uh, or Britain's um, national health service system, which is um, a single-payer health care system. And um, without going into too much nerdy, boring political detail, I, I will say there was significant resistance and opposition to passage of it initially. But when the government that instituted this policy, very important policy, five years later attempted to... Um, essentially come in as an opposition force to remove this service, the opposition to that policy change was 80 to 90 percent. So I almost think cynically here that um, even before we uh, try to move to voter uh, compulsory voting as a model, I almost wonder what would occur if um, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, President Sanders does successfully implement the single-payer model, and I almost wonder what would if it would be better for democracy to have that happen, and eight years later or so have an opposition Republican come in and attempt to stop that. I almost wonder if that could be the defining moment for voter registration. Well, let's remember, Social Security wasn't really popular when it was implemented either. Right. And there was a time where you couldn't even talk about making changes to that. I mean, in the Reagan years, oh my goodness, we couldn't talk about retirement. You couldn't touch it. It was the third rail of politics. And because people are disengaging from their politics now, you have people talking about privatizing it. I mean, it's they're threatening to undo it as we know it, even though millions of Americans rely, rely upon it as their sole source of income. In their, in their later years, right? You can't exactly. take it away. Say, I, I, I think you're on to something there. And there are some things that, you know, but to me, twice a year, 
walk into a building, choose somebody and walk out? I mean, isn't, is that, is that really too much to expect to enjoy the benefits of being an American citizen? Right. Really? I mean, do you remember, you might be too young, but when apartheid fell, the cover of Time magazine was a, a long shot, long photo that looked into the horizon, and there were, there was a line of very dusty, tired people that had walked miles to be able to exercise their right to vote. And it's an image, I, I used to have it hanging in my dorm room when I was in college, um, but it's an image that I can't get out of my head. People die for this privilege, and we can't stop by on the way home from work, walk in, find our name on a list, and go in and pull a lever? Right. Is that really too much? Like, I just, I'm stunned by that. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We say we love our vets because they, they, they are willing to commit the ultimate sacrifice. To me, the least we can do to thank them is give up 20 minutes in a year to go vote. Right. I look at, you know, I kind of look at it, it's the little, it's the least bit that you could do. Oh, exactly. You know, I almost think that um, something like that, as cynical as this sounds, perhaps a um, a biometric thumbprint-enabled um, phone application or something to that effect may be what we need in order to have mandatory voting. I, By mail? I mean, but here's the thing. You could do it. I mean, states have, have success, successfully implemented by mail. You get your ballot. You fill it out. You pop it in the mail online, right? We have security measures that are tight enough that I know I can shop at Amazon and no one hacks my account. And when I log back in, they know who I am and where I live, right? I mean, there's, the technology is, is, is out there. Yeah. I'm not a fan, I'm not a fan of the voting machines, for, for the record. Nor I. Really I. Like paper, right? I really like paper. But there is a way, I mean, imagine if I got a receipt, right? If you got a receipt for your voting, you could print out your ballot. And you see the numbers are totally skewed. You have actually a record that you could go and file lawsuits. They miscounted the ballots. Yep. Right? And right now you get nothing. So, you know, technology is on our side in this way. We could make it so effortless. Oh, but yeah. But yet, we, you know, the will isn't there because, as we know, the more people, the more disenfranchised people vote, Democrats tend to win. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Actually, so, yeah. I understand why they're trying to fight have that not happen, but it's our job to, you know, be loud about it until we can make a change. Absolutely. The last thing I was going to comment on related to that is um, my understanding is these voting machines that you and I both have a significant amount of uh, criticism for um, actually are uh, owned by private companies. Mm -hmm. Of course they are. Thanks for that. Um, just uh, for our our audience here, um, what Carrots just referred to, FOIA, is uh, the Freedom of Information Act request. 
uh, which um, ideally would allow someone to petition an institution uh, for information that uh, relates in in many ways to to, to court cases and uh, pending legislation. Um, now, uh, Kareth, um, <clears throat> I was wondering. Summary, by the way. Thank you so much. Um, now, um, is a is a private institution um, required by law to comply with FOIA requests, though? If they're affecting public works. Interesting. Right, but, but again, I think that's where the, you get caught in the quagmire. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm certain there are attorneys saying, oh, we don't have to comply with that. So yeah. I think that's where it's stuck. Yeah. But I think that's one of the benefits to those that favor private contractors. Oh, yeah, of course. Right, is because there are a hell of a lot more barriers and to transparency. Plausible deniability. This Plausible is um deniability. the the reason why I was asking about that is um I'm following very closely the terrible crisis occurring in Flint and um one of the the major issues is, is that there are, are private companies involved and um previously they were denying FOIA requests um which prevented accountability. But um you know this is a whole other uh, segment we can do in a in a podcast in a later date. I have um I've gotten a, a little bit excited with your uh, your brilliant insights here. But um, m- m- moving back onto um, the issues here, um, okay. a- as an attorney working on children's issues, um, you have received significant praise uh, from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, culminating in a position to the Juvenile Court Procedural Rules Committee. Now, um, how have these experiences informed your positions on children's issues? Well, interestingly enough, Pennsylvania didn't even have a set of rules governing juvenile court until 2005. Wow. So all the other arms of court have had rules since the 30s, right, or the 50s maybe, but juvenile court did not. And it was viewed as kid court, you know, baby court, like not real law happened, you know, no real law happened there. A lot of judges didn't want to stay in juvenile court. Um, and with the implementation of the rules, um, it, it started to give some continuity to how things were to happen across the 67 counties, because that's how we're, that's how Pennsylvania is structured. We have 67 independent counties. Um, and it was, it was a very important step forward. And when I had the opportunity to sit on the committee, it, it gives you a glimpse into um, why rules are, are created. Right? Sure. We, we don't create them just for the heck of it. If, it, if we identify a problem um, in the process, there's a lot of negotiation, which is exciting. It's like being in a law school class all over again, right? The minutia <laughs> of, of the work. Um, but it makes it makes justice more accessible, and that's what it should always be about, especially with kids, with cases that affect kids. You know, what happens to a kiddo in Allegheny County or Erie County should be similar to what's happening in Northampton or Jefferson. Of course. And it's something that we've been able to do. Um, I really, I I enjoy the work. But um, what's most fascinating is one of our Supreme Court justices, Max Baer, created what we call the Children's Roundtable Initiative in 2006. And the purpose of it was to improve our permanency numbers because they weren't good. Kids were coming into our system and languishing. They were, once they would age out of their system, there weren't a lot of supports in place. Compared to other states, we weren't doing well. And in the 10 years that we've been working 
on that initiative, we have made fundamental changes about how child welfare works in the Commonwealth. And this only affects kids that come through the, the, the foster care system, right? So it's just kids that are dependent. Um, but it's amazing what happens when you put people in a room that have never talked to each other before, right? All of a sudden you start having really robust conversations about what works and what doesn't. And you let, you know, pride falls by the wayside. And we talk about outcomes and we do a lot of analysis of data. And we do good work. I mean, we shorten the appeal period for kids. Um, when we terminate parents' rights, the appeal period used to be over two years. That families would wait for a decision from the Supreme Superior Supreme Court so that they could be adopted. We're now down to six to nine months. Wow. Right? I mean, it might not affect hundreds of thousands of children, but boy, the kids it does affect, it really affects. I mean, two years in the life of a two-year-old, right? It's their entire life. Right. So, yeah. So it's it's been an honor. I absolutely love the work, but um, it's it's like-minded people sitting around a room saying, how do we make this better? So. Absolutely, Kareth, and thank you so much for that. Um, I think a lot of people would be remiss to recite any sort of comprehension whatsoever on um, issues such as these and I very much appreciate that analysis. Now um, getting back into a little bit more of the nitty-gritty of politics um, okay. you, <laughs> you previously ran against Glenn Thompson the Republican in the 5th District. Um, now you seem to be very much ready for round two what has changed in your district in the last two years and what specific policy differences stand out the most between the the incumbent and yourself well nothing has changed um the median income in this area is below forty thousand dollars a year we have a horrific problem with underemployment versus unemployment, right? People working many part-time jobs trying to make ends meet. Sure. Um, the the wage is, is very low. Women earn the lowest comparable wage to men of all the 67 counties in wow. my county of Jefferson, 57 cents on the dollar. Um, a lot of these women are the breadwinners in their family, and they're raising their families on half. Are you referring to uh, typically minority women in these instances? Wow. Yes. So this is not a race issue at all. It's a, it's, it's poverty, right? And it's what I think is so interesting. And I think if I had to sum up the differences in, in my, my vision and Glenn Thompson's vision, it's do the policies that, are, you know, the policies that he votes upon in Congress, is the outcome going to help the many or are they going to help the few? Sure. Right? Or are they going to hurt the many? Or are they going to hurt the few? And uh, my, my view of this whole thing is that as public servants, your obligation is to do good things for the many. Right. right? To, policies should be implemented that move us forward as a whole, as, as much as we possibly can, as opposed to, you know, something that helps, the, you know, a handful. But the system we've created is that policy is crafted to the to the the wants of the people that it can afford to pay for it. Of course, that's what we now have. It's you know you get you write the check and you get the benefit. 
and it's we should be we should just be so ashamed of ourselves. Here's a great example: the tax extenders bill that passed in December. Mm -hmm. Familiar at all? Yes. Okay. They do this every year. The lobbyists spend all this money trying to get these particular little Easter eggs just for their industry because they're not in the tax code. So among the myriad giveaways that happened, and what I find funny is they call Democrats, you know, the people at welfare. They give away to the people who don't deserve it. The Republicans give so much more away to so many fewer people. Yes. But yet they don't get labeled with, you know, they don't get smacked with that label. But they repealed the country of origin labeling for me. Yep. They sure and did. And the tax extenders bill. So I'm looking at that thinking, okay, who asked for that? Do the millions of Americans who go to the grocery store and buy their meat say, you know what, I don't want to know where my meat's coming from. I'm okay with it coming from China when we know they've had at least two dog food recalls for killing dogs and one baby formula recall for killing babies, right? We know right. this. Exactly. So I don't really want to know. Or is it a handful of interests, industry interests, didn't want to compete unfairly, they claim, with the companies that keep all of their resources in the United States. Exactly. So, right? I am very fortunate. I live in rural America, right? The folks that supply the meat to my local grocery store who's owned by a guy that I grew up with and went to high school with, right? Wow. They get their meat locally. I know this. I'm lucky. But what about the rest of the people? Exactly. Right? So now you don't quite know, and I know there's companies that actually ship live animals to China to be slaughtered yep. and packaged and shipped back because it's just a little bit cheaper. Yeah. Not to mention the undermining of what used to be union jobs. Exactly. Absolutely. So, yeah, so it's like a big circle. And really, who asked for that? Who paid for that? It wasn't the American people. It was a handful of people who wanted to be able to further control how much money they make. And they got exactly what they asked for, what they paid for. And we should be ashamed of ourselves that we're allowing stuff like that to happen. You know, right? Kareth, um, I, I apologize for the interruption there, but this... No, you're fine. This is, um, this is something that very few of the candidates I have uh, talked to have really discussed. This is unpeeling the onion on an incredibly important issue related to special interests. Now, um, everyone's discussing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but there are quite a few trade agreements that have been passed, such as NAFTA, CAFTA, Permanent Normal Trade Relations with China, that predate Trans-Pacific Partnership and in many ways set the stage for it procedurally, institutionally, and with the framework of the legislation drafted by the industries. So, um, what you just referred to, uh, the country of origin labeling controversy, is actually a procedural uh, move to um, actually set our country's labeling laws in line with what the business interests in the Trans-Pacific Partnership want in anticipation for its passage. And furthermore, a second issue related to this that came out of NAFTA is there's actually um, a company out of Canada that is suing the United States government for $15 billion um, over Obama's vetoing of the Keystone Pipeline. So <laughs> this, this further unpeels the onion on the issue, and I would love to get your opinion on these things. Right? 
NAFTA right. was going to be the undoing. And now, how many years later, we have absolutely decimated the agricultural industry in Central America, right? Because we've under, because our huge agribusiness has been able to quarter the market and drop the price of corn so precipitously low that it doesn't make sense for them to farm their small farms. They still need to feed their families, so what do they do? They try to get into the United States. They take jobs at horrifically low wages, again, undermining the American worker. So we created this problem. Our immigration problem was set in motion when NAFTA was passed. Very interesting. And, and to go one step further, the immigration problem, if you want to call it a problem, I would argue the very first thing we should do is if we mean to stem the tide of illegal immigration, we should be absolutely damn serious about enforcing laws about employers employing legitimate workers, right? ID check. And if you're found to have violated by hiring undocumented workers, it should be more than a damn slap on the wrist. Right. Right? Shut down the facility. I'm sorry. If you don't shut off the magnet, people will continue to try to come and work here. But of course, business, Chamber of Commerce and many others, don't want to go the direction of putting the onus on the employer to not hire the, the cheaply, you know, the cheap labor because it undermines what they're well, paying for that. That's what they're paying for with their lobbyists, right? Exactly. Don't, don't get in the way of us being able to make a better dollar. And some of the human rights, human rights conditions that are going on in agriculture and slaughterhouses with undocumented workers, if we were negotiating with a country that allowed some of these things to happen, we would be appalled on a human rights basis. But because it's happening here, right, we're good employers. We don't say a word. Right. And when Bernie Sanders, with every question he's asked, something I really like about him, he keeps coming back to campaign finance, and I'm certain some people think that it's a broken record, but he's absolutely right. We have been bought, and until we break that, we are not going to be able to fix the fundamental issues that are plaguing our country. Absolutely. And if we mean it, we need to mean it. You know what Fiorina is violating the no collusion rule yep. between her super PAC and, and her and her campaign. Right? By helping to coordinate at her events. Right, right. Clear violation. Even though Justice Scalia thought we were all being naive to think that, that there would be collusion. But here we have it. Why is it the consequence for violating campaign finance law that you're pulled off the ballot? That's a great question. If we mean it, why isn't that the consequence? Exactly. Fine? already raised $40 million, what, what's a $15,000 fine? They'll just raise it. You, you, you can replace that. It's a cost of doing business. Right. That's outrageous. The rules should be the rules, and if we mean it, your name should come off the ballot. You should be precluded from having your name listed as an option. Period. But we don't do that. That's not how we think about things, because we want wiggle room for the people that can afford the wiggle room. Exactly. Oligarchy yeah. in option. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I love it, Kara. Thank you so much yeah. for that analysis. Now, sure. um, one of your campaign platforms relates very strongly to the minimum wage, or rather, more specifically, from your platform, a livable wage. Now, 
what figure do you believe is about right, and what effect will this have for the Leafs and franchise in your community? I think it's going to have a larger effect on the nation if we're able to get this through. Sure. Right? A more immediate effect on the nation than, than we'll necessarily see in pockets. But I think 10-10 is where we start because, you know, if you adjust for inflation, the minimum wage that people are now earning is less than what it was in the 60s. Exactly. Yeah, we know that everything's more expensive. 15 um, makes people really nervous, especially, I mean, I live in, a, in rural Pennsylvania, right? $15 right. an hour is not something a lot of people earn, and they've been at their jobs for 25 years. Sure. So, not to say that that's okay, but 15 um, feels too high, but I think where we're going to see the biggest impact from a decision like this is the reduction of the burden on the social safety net. Right. Right now, we are all paying for it. So, you know, when Walmart, for example, pays wages that are below the poverty line, and then they help their people sign up for free and reduced lunches, <laughs> Section 8 housing, and food stamps, then 18% of the food stamp dollars, the last time I checked, was actually received by Walmart employees. Exactly. Guess where they spend their food stamp, right? So now Walmart's making a profit off of government dollars. Corporate welfare. Corporate welfare. And it's to the tune of like $40 billion over a decade. Yep. So, you know, if, you know, people always talk about, oh, you know, you raise the minimum wage and it's going to cause prices to go up. And here's the thing, like taxes should go down if we can reduce the burden on the safety net. Exactly. That's how it should work. I mean, and what's great is, I don't know, you're not from this side of the country, but we have a company called Sheets. It's a huge, they have gas stations and convenience stores, and everybody here loves Sheets. They just announced that they were upping their wages from 10 to $16. Wow. Family-owned company, $20 million in profits every year, and that's what they're doing. It's feeding it back into their employees. I'm over the moon. Like, I'm, I'm I mean, I'm a, I was a loyal customer to begin with, but now even more so, because those folks are now going to be able to earn more money. Guess what? They're going to spend more money. They're going to put that money in the economy. Things get churning and moving, and that's what happens when people have more money in their pockets to spend. Of course. It's a no-brainer to me, but there are those, again, that are funded by the Chamber of Commerce and that are funded by industry. Oh, God, you can't do this. What will happen? Exactly. And, yeah, it's, it's a scare tactic. Now, um, for our listeners... Um, on the, the the issue of the minimum wage, there are some of them that do tend to be more independent, a little more nervous. Uh, just to summarize a few of the misconceptions on the minimum wage and the likely refutations, the minimum wage going up does not have any relationship whatsoever to inflation. Go ahead and look that up for yourself. Secondly, increase in minimum wage increases consumption, which is 70% of the GDP of our economy, which in turn creates more jobs for everyone. And then, of course, uh, the issue of the consumer uh, price index of um, normal goods purchased in America um, does not have a very strong relationship of more than 1% or 2% to an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Just uh, These are figures quoted from Robert Reich and Paul Krugman and many other prominent Nobel laureate e economists on this issue, just for the audience there. Excellent point. Excellent point. Thank you so much, Kareth. Now, um, 
It would also seem, um, based upon our conversation and your, your issues page, that you have very strong positions in the on the LGBTQ issues. Now, what are the main issues LGBTQ individuals face in your community, and what policies would you advocate for to protect them? Pennsylvania, last April, on primary day, um, it was decided that gay marriage was legal, right? So that finally came to Pennsylvania. And it was kind of interesting. There was you know, this expectation that there was going to be this backlash, especially in rural Pennsylvania, right? Um, no one cared. No one wrote a letter to the editor. No one said that everyone was going to hell. No, it, it, it was a blip, right? My judge did one of his, the first same-sex weddings of a um, someone who worked in the courthouse. It was on the front page of the newspaper. And no, nothing, right? So it was, which made me very proud that it happened and there wasn't blowback. However, in Pennsylvania, you still can be, you still can lose your job. If someone suspects that you're gay and doesn't like it, you yep. can be kicked out of it. You can be evicted from your apartment. They can refuse to rent to you. Um, I have a very particular issue coming up just tonight at my, my school board meeting. Um, an LGBT group wants to start a club, right? 37 kids want to get together and, and form a club. Um, to fight against bullying, and it's straight kids, and it's, you know, gay kids. It's been top, fantastic. They came to the board meeting and talked about it, and there are, there's, there's pushback from my board saying, you know, why did they get a club? To which I respond, we have a fly fishing club. <laughs> we have an archery club, right? Some yeah. of our clubs have, like, three members, and here we have 37 kids that want to get together, you know, once a month and talk about issues and support each other. How do you, how do you say no to that? So it'll be interesting to see where the vote falls, but... There's still a perception that, oh, we don't want to talk about it. Oh, you're different. Don't remind me. Just blend in. And, you know, I just think that the generations coming up don't see the difference. Absolutely. They just see the discrimination, and they don't like it. So they're saying something about it, which I think is bold. And I'm proud of these kids for stepping forward and saying, you know, I mean, there was one girl that stood up and said, I'm straight, but my best friend isn't. And I don't like him being bullied. So... I want to do the right thing. You taught me to do the right thing, right? I've been doing anti-bullying campaign stuff for 12 years. So I'm stepping forward and doing the right thing, and now you're going to tell me I can't do it in the club? Absolutely insane. Yeah, so work still needs to be done, but I also think, you know, the time it took us to get from the Civil War to, to the Civil Rights was 100 years. Sure. Right? The time it took to get from Stonewall to marriage being legal was 50. Right. Right? So we are shortening the time it takes to do right by the disenfranchised communities. It would be lovely when we get to a place where it doesn't take us that long to figure it out. Um, but at least we're moving forward. Absolutely, Kareth. And, you know, um, I appreciate your um, your criticism um, related to housing and, and firing um, because um, the um, equal opportunity... Uh, laws in this in this country do not currently enfranchise the rights of LGBTQ. They relate to age, religion, sex. Um, I believe also marital status, several other categories. But yeah, that is a major issue. And then, um, of course, um, the very idea of a gay straight alliance club not being allowed to to organize because and if if you'll excuse my my ageist and potentially somewhat racist indictment here um, just because a couple old white guys um, 
do not necessarily find it comfortable for um, progress to be made um, for people just to be able to organize a club. I find that to be an indictment of the current system. I, I can't wait to hear their defense of their vote tonight. Absolutely. I'm, ooh, it's, it's, it's going to be heated, to say the least. But because what, what, can be, what, can be, what can the objection be? Sure. What legitimate objection can you make when we have an archery club? Right. You can't pretend that all of our clubs are education-related. Fly, fly fishing. Really? <laughs> no. People love fly fishing, and that's terrific. Let them get together and tie fly, you know, tie fly. That's great. But it means you can't say no to this one. Absolutely. Or at least you shouldn't be able to. So, That'll yeah. be interesting that's, that's to follow. That's tonight. We'll see what happens. Absolutely. Now, um, thank you for that, Kareth. Now, um, just like both of the current Democratic candidates for president, and quite frankly, several congressional candidates we have interviewed, you believe in strong investments in infrastructure. What will this vision look like in practice? So, the best time to put a new roof on your house is when interest rates are low. Right? Yeah. Interest rates are low, people usually are looking for work. You can put your roof on your house for less money than you would if you waited for interest rates to be high. Econ 101. Exactly. Interest rates have been stagnant. They just ticked up, right? I think in December, just ticked up. We missed the opportunity to move for full employment, putting our roads and, roads and bridges and infrastructure back together. We have more miles of crumbling road in the 5th Congressional District. It's one of the largest in the United States. And we have bridges that are out of commission because they can't hold, they can't hold a school bus, so they can't be crossed. Um, and we missed an opportunity to reinvest in what once made us great, which was the ability to move merchandise to market, right? We used to have a robust railway system that we're pulling out, which I think some people are regretting at this point. Um, and we have a crumbling infrastructure that no one wants to pay for, but that's the time to pay for it. And what you saw, we couldn't get the transportation bill, you know, passed, if it had bells and whistles attached to it. And... It spurs employment, and it makes sure that we have something worth reinvesting in. The cost, that it'll, the money it takes to fix something when it's fully broken, is more than it costs to repair. Exactly. And we miss the repair window. We're missing the repair window. And I think it's, I think it's irresponsible of our electeds to not be funneling money into those kinds of public works projects. I mean, look at Flint. Exactly. Right? There you go. There's a prime there's a prime example right there. They didn't want to pay a little bit more money to Detroit to get water, so they decided to do this cockamamie plan to pull it out of the river and they're poisoning people. That's that's a that's a public works issue. That's an infrastructure issue. Absolutely. But, that's yeah. a excellent indictment there. Now, thank you so much for that, Kareth. Now um there's a focus in your platform on spurring innovation and supporting small business interests over those of Wall Street. Are there any policies you would currently advocate for on the issues of small business and innovation? First and foremost, I think the, the definition of small business according to the Small Business Administration needs to be changed. Do you know what it is? Uh, five million? Five hundred employees or less. Wow. Okay, let's think about that. I run my own business and I have three employees, including me. 
um, a lot of my clients run their own business, right? I have a client that they butcher, right? Sure. Hunters get deer, cattle. They, it's three people, right? Right. When we talk about small business. When small business owners talk about small business, we mean us. <laughs> when the Small Business Administration talks about small business, they talk about the largest employers in my town who employ 450 people. Right. Their needs are very different from our needs, right? Exactly. But that's been, that's been the focus. And entrepreneurs that hire one, two, three, employ, you know, three employees, they're the ones that are creating jobs. Exactly. But you don't really see them because it's one here, it's two there. So, you know, to actually acknowledge and pay attention to businesses like mine that have to wade through payroll taxes and, you know, do all of that, um, I think would really it'd be a step in the right direction because 500 employees or less, I guarantee you that they have accountants on staff. I guarantee you they have attorneys on staff. I guarantee you that they're in touch with their local representatives to make sure legislation is passed or considered that benefits them, right? Of course. That's not, that, that, that's not what we can do. And I wish the focus were more on true small businesses, which is a mom and pop having, you know, a garage or a small family farm, right? Right. So it's a shift in it's a shift in attention and focus that I think is necessary because five hundred employees that just makes me laugh. <laughs> small business. What's small about that? Right. Absolutely, Kareth. Thank you. Now, you've. You've come out strongly against Citizens United and McCutcheon versus FEC decisions that in many ways have empowered the upper class in this country to purchase elections. In addition to calling for overturn of these decisions, uh, is there anything further that you would recommend? Well, we touched on it earlier. A little bit, right? yeah. If we mean it, the consequences should be drastic. If we mean you can't collude with your super PAC, your name should come off the ballot, right? Sure. It should, if we mean it. Um, I think, though, they're, getting it fixed is going to be, it needs to come from the legislature. Sure. And it needs to just be fixed. Personally, I am a huge proponent of public financing. Yes. Yes, public financing allows legislators to actually do the work of their constituency without being beholden to anyone. And the places that have managed to eke it out, I know there's a Connecticut, I think, um, over over a decade of time, you start to see a shift in the direction of legislation, right? It starts moving to the politics of many versus the politics of few. Interesting. And if we, right, and if we want, if we really want our electeds to be responsive then you need to level the playing field and have them not be bought. Something that occurred to me last night when I was watching the debate, um, they were talking about the Goldman Sachs money and how much don you know, donations have come in. And all I kept thinking was, I don't want to have to take anyone's word for the fact that they're not beholden. Of course. And that's the system we have. Oh, you took the money, but you're really not behold. Really? I'm supposed to trust you. <laughs> you, just, you just tell me. But that's the system we have. Yes, right. I took the money. But I didn't vote that way because of it. I voted that way because that's what I believe. Well, there's a word we use to, to describe that. Probably not appropriate on a podcast, but... BS, maybe? Oh, it's bull. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's just, it's, it's fiction. 
and yet we're expected to buy it. Oh, well, they say they're not. No, they are. That's how it works. Absolutely. And I absolutely love that, Kareth, and thank you so much for your um, your thoughtful vision there. Now, um, you've come out with um, constructive criticism on the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, as a as caveat, virtually all politicians that I have um, interviewed and that I have read about have, because governors can deny Medicaid expansion, particularly Republican governors. Um, now, there are currently two Democratic candidates engaged in a fierce debate over health care in this country. Um, one calls for ACA expansion, the other calls for single-payer health care. Which position, do you, uh, specifically on the issue of health care, do you find yourself more ideologically supportive of? Single-payer. Absolutely. Single-payer. You know, I, I understand how we got here. Right. When this whole debate was brewing, there was a group of people that wanted single payer, and there was a larger group of people that wanted to the status quo. Right. Let's change nothing. And we ended up with this bill in the middle. Is it moved? Is, did it move us forward? Yes. Did it increase the number of people that had access to health care? Yes. Did it remove pre you know pre existing conditions? Sure. Limitate. I mean, it did a lot of good things, but it's fundamentally flawed because the I think the biggest winners under the ACA are the insurance companies. Exactly. And I think it was a gift, <laughs> to be honest. It, again, take the good with the bad. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the bottom end, if you aren't poor, if there's, there's, a, there's a cutoff to being working poor enough to qualify for the subsidy. Right. If you earn $11,900, you pay $500 a month for your health insurance. If you earn $12,400, you can do it, get it for like 54 bucks. Right. So what's going to be really working poor enough, right, which is what Medicaid would have allowed, you know, if they, if they broadened it, it would have caught those people, but Pennsylvania didn't take the ticket. Under Our former governor didn't take the Medicaid expansion. So I had clients coming into my office that if they'd only earned $40 more, could have qualified for a health insurance plan. But instead they used the emergency room and filed bankruptcy. Absolutely insane. How did that work out for the, you know, the greater good? So, um, single payer, it does result in an increase in tax, but if I'm not paying the $12,000 a year I'm paying in my health insurance premiums, I'm okay with that. Of course. You know, in the grand scheme of things, I'm okay with that. Hmm. So Cash flow, yeah. let's consider yeah. this. I mean, it's, to me, um, the fact that, I mean, and, I mean, Bernie talked about it last night at the debate, which yep. I was so happy. We, our spending is out of control, and our outcomes are not that much greater than other developed nations. So we're just spending money just to spend it, and when you have industry capture of the, of the policy and legislation, it's not, I mean, it's not a surprise why, and that should be the job of our government to rein that in. Absolutely. So it should work. The, um, the other thing that I find so interesting, you know, before we move on to our last few questions here, um, the ACA, um, otherwise known as Obamacare, <clears throat> was Obama's signature piece of, of legislation as a supposedly ultra-liberal socialist Muslim. Uh, now, what I find so funny about this is the conservatives in this country have created this brand, right? But 
this was actually the Affordable Care Act was a Heritage Foundation proposal and it almost seems like the the memory of the conservative movement is about the equivalent of a goldfish because this was actually the greatest gift to pharmaceutical companies and to private health insurance companies in a in a generation so just a little Obamacare. bit more common to yes exactly I mean, the, the republican was the one who first trotted this out with success right right so you're 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 absolutely right and but, but like you said it's let's scare people i had this really funny debate um a very good friend of mine <laughs> was, is, is constantly lamenting the cost of health insurance for his family on Facebook, constantly just going at it. So I couldn't resist. So I hop on healthcare.gov, I do a search, I find three policies that would cover, you know, him, his wife, and his kids, and here's the price. It's about, you know, going to be like $1,000 a month for pretty good coverage with not a crazy deductible. And the response I get is, are you kidding? That's so much money. And so I broke it down. I said, do you really think that you can insure your family for less than $127 a month per person? I mean, like, that's really too much? And silence, right? Crickets chirped. Right. So what exactly, so what you really wanted was single payer. Yep. Right? I mean, this is a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. Right. What he really wanted was single payer, but God forbid he admit that. Exactly. And that's what it comes down to. Because we know that the Medicare system has a very low overhead. They're able to control their fraud, you know, relatively well. Um, they provide good outcomes for people. So it's just a whole other rant for a whole other day. <laughs> exactly, so, Kara. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much for that. Now, um, you have come out in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. And quite frankly, why shouldn't any politician in the greatest country in America, supposedly America, which enshrines equal pay for women workers. Are there any details on this that you would like to comment on? I think it's going to be symbolic, unfortunately, because if, if and when it happens, I think the fact that the, the raging battle over women's health care is still happening makes it very clear that there are some that don't want women to have access and choice. Right. I think there are some that would prefer if we were just out of the workforce. I think there are some that believe, you know, if there were any downfall of our, you know, young generation, it's because women left the home and went into the workforce, and we need to fix that and put them back. So the idea, I don't know, I mean, if the Equal Rights Amendment passed, is it going to stop the Planned Parenthood attacks? Probably not. But it'll move right. the goalposts, though. It, 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 it will. And if I ever had the chance to vote for it, I absolutely would. Sure. Um, and maybe I'm just cynical. I mean, I watched I watched the entirety of the Planned Parenthood hearings. And it's something I actually recommend to my clients to prepare for trial. And I say to them, I don't care about your position on abortion because it's not about abortion. I want you to watch it because it's how, it's how a good witness testifies. But what I found so fascinating was they kept tearing, trying to tear her up for the fact that they don't provide mammograms. Right? Planned Parenthood doesn't provide mammograms. And the response was, we don't have a radiological center in our facility. We send them out. And any woman in the United States that has had a mammogram knows this to be true. Your OBGYN doesn't 
do that service, you go to an x-ray tech, right? This is absolutely, this is beyond debate. And yet, a number of women members who were old enough to have had mammograms repeated the charge. <laughs> How dare you not have provide mammograms in your offices? Despite the absolute fact that it's not how it's done. Right. And it went on for five hours. Like it was an example of how far we'll go to get away from facts. That's what we have right now. So, you know, the whole idea of issues about women being addressed with facts, with rationale and logic, I guess I'm an inherent optimist, but we'll see. I love it, Kareth. Thank you so much for your, your courage and coming out on that issue. Now, um, I uh, did happen to um, find a little bit of information uh, which surprised you prior to our uh, recording this conversation. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your rehoming foster children bill? Oh, okay. So, it, it's, it's an issue that not a lot of people are aware of, but um, if you... If a family adopts a child and the adoption breaks, right, for whatever reason, and a lot of the kids that are coming out of the foster care system have a lot of very special needs, and sometimes they can be very taxing, the expectation is if you find that you're no longer able to care for this child, that you should go back to the agency from whom you were, from which you adopted, right, and they will help find a new family. Sure. However, there's no obligation of you to do that. So there's a network, and there's a brilliant piece, and I could find it and send it to you if you're interested. Absolutely. Um, woman, a woman did a two-year, I think, investigation in the underground network of rehoming children. So families that have adopted kids and it just didn't work out go on the Internet and find families that are willing to take them, and they drive them states, states and states away. They drop them off with a backpack, um, and they leave. Um, it's been found that a lot of these people are pedophiles and have used the children in child porn. Um, a lot of these kids run away and end up either being trafficked or just living homeless on the streets. And there's no criminal charges associated with it. None. Wow. None. And I believe, and, and it's, it's an issue for states, right? So for the kiddo that just stopped showing up to school, and the parent says, oh, they went to live with my cousins. No one asks. Right? There's no follow-up. Sure. Of course, you have the right to send your parent, you know, your kiddo to live with your cousins for a while. No one looks any deeper. And for the home that got the kiddo, the parent signed, a guardian, signed guardianship over. So if they do register for them for school, they show up with the proper paperwork. Here's my kid. Or they collect more benefits, right? They, they put them onto their household and increase their food stamp allotment. Or, or you can just imagine all of the issues that come with it, of but course. the reality is we have these very vulnerable kids, um, and when one adoption breaks, it makes it more likely that the others will, right. and I think if you do not go back to the agency from whom you adopt the child, I think you should be charged, charged criminally with endangering the welfare of a child. Of course. Yeah, and it needs to be federal because it crosses state lines. That's absolutely fascinating, Kareth. Yeah. I mean... I I had never, truth be told, I I consider myself a, a progressive. When given the choice between Hillary Clinton and Obama, I voted for Obama in the primaries. I voted for Obama in 2012 over the um, 
uh, <laughs> let's just say Romney. And right. um, in 2016, I intend to vote for the most progressive choice, Senator Bernie Sanders. But I have never heard of this rehoming foster children issue. And I think we've done a, a great service today for this community to, at, at the very least, begin discussing this issue. I very much hope that um, this issue is raised to national prominence sooner rather than later, so I thank you for that. It's an easy fix, but again, who, no one's paying for it, so it's not getting, it, it won't get any attention. Absolutely. Right? It's not, it's not a priority to any industry or money lobby, so we're not going to see it anytime soon unless, obviously, we start, we elect these 530. You know what's interesting, um, and I, you, just, you just made the comment that you're voting for the most progressive voting for the most progressive candidate. And I don't even know if that's not the word I think of when I think of Bernie Sanders. I'm not saying it's not a descriptive word. Sure. And I don't know if I'm, I guess, I mean, I, I live in such a rural area, I've never thought about the label. But I can tell you why I'm voting for Bernie Sanders. He tells the truth. Right, the most honest candidate. And I know it's, you know, we've come to expect so little from our elected representatives that when they give us a scintilla of anything, most people are satisfied, right? We expect so little when they do just a bit. Like, when they pass a budget, oh, hallelujah, look at that, they did their job today. Right. Right, which is shameful. Um, but something that I, I mean, it's what I appreciate every time I hear him speak. He's not sugarcoating it. He doesn't dance around it. When he was asked last night at the debate about what he said about Bill, Right, when he's what he said about Bill Clinton. Yeah. His answer was honest. He didn't dance around it. He didn't, right? It wasn't a great answer. Here, right. he, this is what it was. I was kind of cornered and it was uncomfortable, and this is what I said because I really think it, but I don't really say it very much. Right. And I, I yearn for the day when we have that kind of frankness coming from the bully pulpit. Because exactly. I feel like we might be able to be saved. Like, we might, there might be hope if, if we can have that, and maybe it'll spread and ooze to the other electeds. And maybe we'll start being more particular about who we elect, because we'll use him as a model. This you know, is, art. oh my goodness, yeah. thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I wish every single word I just said had a period after it. <laughs> so oh, much. my pleasure. I'm just, I am so delighted to know that there's, all of these people, thousands of people that were not typically engaged in their politics, and I'm seeing it in this district, people that, um, you know, I'm pretty tied into the Democratic Party, and when I go to the more populated counties, and I know most of the people that show up for routine stuff, when Bernie events happen, there's people crawling out of the woodwork I've never met before. Right. These are people that have opted out of their politics up until now. Now, they probably voted, but they weren't, you know, engaged in a letter-writing, door-knocking, phone call kind of way, and now they're, and they're here. So it gives me this, I mean, my heart kind of bursts out of my chest when I walk into a room and there's 130 people, and I only know 30 of them. And half are millennials. And it's it for Bernie, and it tells me there's something here, and I just hope that we can make it, you know, continue to make it bigger. We have how many months to do it, and yeah, I look, I, it's going to be an exciting year. Absolutely, Kareth, and thank you so much for that. Now, um, we're... We're going to go ahead and wrap up after this next question. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and provide you with the opportunity to um, 
cover, clarify, or um, move on to anything else that you feel um, deserves more attention. But um, you have successfully negotiated between the school board and the teachers' union in your in your district. Now, um, what do you believe the ideal role of the union is as an American institution? Protecting the American worker and the wage base and hopefully helping buoy the waning middle class. Right. When unions are strong, the middle class is strong. When unions are strong, there's a check to big business. When unions are strong, families can afford to own a house and send their kids to college. Right? It's not just for the union member, it sets a standard for wages. And this attack against unions um, has been to pit those that don't have much against those that don't have much. Right? Yep. Um, Dot Walker did it. Chris Christie is doing it. John right Kasich now, tried it. John Kasich did it. And it's shameful, firstly, because unions are, I mean, unions brought us the 40-hour work week. They brought us OSHA. They brought us safety standards. They brought us the right to negotiate, period, right? Um, <laughs> but, you, but you can't just be fired on a whim. Um, there are so many protections that we've gained from it. But again, just like voting, we're so far away from a time where children work, were working in textile factories, right? It's so far away that we forget our history. We forget the things that union um, organization gave us and that people fought and died for. So I look at my union who, for the first time in 25 years, we settled a contract without a strike. These people had to go, they had to strike in order to get a fair contract. Wow. These are the kids that are educating my kids. And they were vilified and humiliated. Um, um, one of our school board members put a van out front with a sign that said, Honk if you hate teachers. What? That's what hap that, that was what happened in my community. And it was because how dare they make more than me. That's what, it, that's what it was. It was an us versus them mentality. And what I find fascinating is, in the us versus them argument, I think more of the us. If you have to think about how much money you have in your bank account when you go to the grocery store, right? You're an us. Right. If you don't, you're a them. If you buy, you know, the sale pasta, right? If you look at the prices on all the pasta and don't buy your favorite brand because one's a little bit cheaper and it's not quite that bad, you're an us. If you don't, or if you haven't set foot in a grocery store because someone else does your shopping for you, you're a them. Right. So regardless of what your party is, you know, the teacher is, is facing the same kinds of struggles that the, that the welder is, right? Everybody's trying to put food on their table, make a nice Christmas for their family, have a car that will start in the winter, right? And it's getting harder and harder to do those things. And when we allow the politics from national stage to convince us that it is an us versus them, meaning a red versus blue, a Republican versus Democrat, we miss the point. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that we can get to a place where we identify that I have a hell of a lot more in common with my Republican neighbors than any of us do with the folks that are funding the presidential elections. Definitely. And that's our job. And if we can break through that, if we can accomplish that, we're getting somewhere. I concur 100%. Yeah. And um, I thank you so much for that, that question, Kareth. Um, is there um, anything further you would like to um, add? I'm just appreciative. I just want to say thank you. 
you for the work that you do and that Adam is doing. I think it's it's refreshing, and I am so pleased to know that people are they're not lamenting; they're doing something about it. And that's what it's all about. So I'm just really appreciative of the fact that you made the time, and I had a ball. This was fun. <laughs> Likewise. We get to talk about wonky politics for an hour, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Kareth. Um, this has been um, Kareth Strano Taylor, um, the Democratic candidate for the fifth district in in Pennsylvania, um, talking with myself, Ian Scott, uh, the contributing editor and columnist for the Political People blog. This is um, our signing off message uh, today. Hope you tune in next time. Thank you so much for listening.